ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so previously then in these lessons these fiqh lessons we were on the chapter regarding the nullifiers of wudu the different types of things that break your wudu that invalidate your wudu and the section we got on to we had just been talking about a person who washes the body of someone deceased does that person now have to make wudu again or not and in fact does that person have to make ghusl as well or not and the answer was so generally the conclusion was that it is So we reconcile and we come to the conclusion of what? Mustahab. That it's not an obligation according to many of the scholars, but it is something <coughs> mentioned as a recommendation to do so. Then there was also the issue of touching the, the mushaf without wudu and whether that is permissible or not. And here, what did the scholars say? It is not permissible and some of them said it is permissible the majority said it is not permissible and then we came to the last section here the hadith of Aisha this is where we're starting today Aisha radiyallahu anha qalat kana rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam يذكر الله على كل أحيانه رواه مسلم وعلقه البخاري عائشة رضي الله عنها said that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم used to do the remembrance of Allah in all of his states in all of his circumstances in all of his states, he would do the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَالْحَدِيثِ يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ يَذْكُرُ اللَّهِ بِأَنْوَاعِ الذِّكْرِ وَمِنْهَا الْقُرْآنِ وَالتَّسْبِيحِ وَالتَّهْلِيلِ وَالتَّكْبِيرِ وَلَا شَكَّ بِأَنَّ أَعْظَمَ الذِّكْرِ هُوَ قِرَاءَةُ الْقُرْآنِ الْكَرِيمِ So the hadith mentions that the Prophet ﷺ used to do the remembrance of Allah in all circumstances, in all of his states, meaning whether he was upon wudu or not whether he was upon in this narration in its general sense it could even mean whether he was upon ghusl purification or not 
and the remembrance of Allah that includes saying subhanallah alhamdulillah allahu akbar la ilaha illallah all of those types of statements are from the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in fact those four statements are from the greatest of the dhikr of Allah for the one who understands the meaning of subhanallah in its reality and the meaning of alhamdulillah and the meaning of Allahu Akbar and the meaning of la ilaha illallah and recently for those who attend in Leeds we did a lecture per statement a full lecture on what subhanallah actually means what is this remembrance of Allah and alhamdulillah what does it actually mean how does it come in the Quran so these are from the greatest forms of dhikr and no doubt from the highest levels of dhikr of the remembrance of Allah is the recitation of the Quran the recitation of the Quran is from the greatest forms of dhikr of remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the narration here says the messenger used to do all of that in all circumstances in all states ala kulli ahyanih yani fi jami'i awqatih at all of the various times sawa'an kana mutatahhiran aw mutawaddi'an wa zahir al-hadith kama asharna yashmal al-Qur'an and so he used to do that whether he was upon purity or not ghusl or not whether he was upon wudu or not in all circumstances the hadith says the messenger used to do the remembrance of Allah and that includes the recitation of the Quran وَأَنَّهُ كَانَ يَقْرَأُ الْقُرْآنَ عَلَى كُلِّ إِحْيَانِهِ مُتَظَهِّرًا وَغَيْرْ مُتَظَهِّرًا وَلَكِنْ صَحَّ فِي الْحَدِيثِ الْآخَرِ عَنْ عَلِي رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ قَالْ كَانَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ يُعَلِّمُنَا الْقُرْآنَ مَا لَمْ يَكُنْ جُنُبًا There is however another hadith the hadith of Ali ibn Abi Talib where he said the messenger used to teach us the Quran as long as he was not upon a state of major impurity he would teach us the Quran as long as he was not upon a state of major impurity meaning in that case in that state he would not recite the Quran and teach the Quran so that hadith would therefore indicate that being upon the major impurity is actually excluded that you do not do the recitation of the Quran when you're in that state فَالْجُنُبْ لَا يَجُوزُ لَهُ أَنْ يَقْرَأَ الْقُرْآنِ لَا مِنَ الْمُصْحَفِ وَلَا عَنْ ظَهْرِ قَلْبِ so a person who is upon the major impurity the sexual impurity etc it is not permissible for him to recite the quran neither from the mushaf 
nor from his memory. If you're in that state where, you're, where you need to make a ghusl, then you do not recite the Qur'an from the mushaf or from your memory until you go and make the ghusl and purify yourself. وَإِنَّمَا يَجُوزُ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ عَلَيْهِ حَدَثٌ أَصْغَرٌ فَهَذَا لَا حَرَجَ عَلَيْهِ أَنْ يَقْرَأَ الْقُرْآنَ, القرآن عَنْ ظَهْرِ قَلْبٍ the person who is upon the minor impurity, meaning that you're not upon wudu, you don't need to make ghusl, you're not upon the major impurity, you're pure in that sense, but you just haven't got wudu, then in that instance, it is permissible for you to recite the Quran from memory. And according to the majority of the scholars though, not from touching the physical mushaf. According to the majority, if you're in a state where you are not upon wudu, you can recite the Quran from memory, but you're not supposed to physically be handling or touching the mushaf in reciting the Quran. وَيُسْتَثْنَى مِنْ ذَلِكَ أَيْضًا قِرَاءَةُ الْقُرْآنِ فِي, في الْمَوَاطِنِ الَّتِي لَا تَلِيقُ بِعَظَمَةِ الْقُرْآنِ Also, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentions, there are certain places that you would not recite the Qur'an in due to those places being degraded places. So you don't recite Qur'an in certain places like the bathrooms. Like in the bathroom you do not recite the Qur'an. So that would also be excluded from the generality of the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha that the messenger used to do the dhikr of Allah in all circumstances. The circumstance of answering the call of nature would be exempt due to the other multiple narrations on that. The circumstance of being upon major impurity would be exempt due to the hadith of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anh. And this is why Ahlu Sunnah wal Jama'ah have a comprehensive and sound understanding of the religion compared to Ahlul Bid'ah. The people who go astray and they become misguided. One of the reasons behind that is because they fail to gather together the sunnah. They take one hadith here, one hadith there, one ayah here, one ayah there, and they try to make their rulings. You can only get the accurate rulings when you have all of the sunnah at your uh, uh, availability you look at it all it's all there you combine between the hadith between the narrations between the different points then you can come to your overall conclusion as to what is allowed and what is not allowed what is general what is specific but if you take one hadith by itself like this one now the messenger used to remember Allah at all times and that's it you have no other narrations, no other knowledge of anything, then you would say even in the bathroom, do the remembrance, the hadith says, in all circumstances. And this is the mistake of the one who doesn't 
gather between all of the sunnah and that is the difference when they talk about in the books of usulul fiqh the different levels of the fuqaha and you have the mujtahid and you have the imam you have all the different levels <coughs> one of the <coughs> one of the things they mention about the mujtahid the scholar who's at the level of the mujtahid they say he is someone who has access to and understanding of the the generality of all of the texts meaning he has access and understanding of all of the various rulings and the sunan as for somebody who may be knowledgeable he may be knowledgeable maybe he knows bulugh al-maram inside and out every page memorized he would still be considered at the beginner level that compared to how much fiqh is out there and how much difference of opinion and uh, different statements and give and take and refutation and rebuttal you would still not be completed and so a person could be knowledgeable but it's different from being knowledgeable to being at the level of a mujtahid they say the mujtahid has a wide understanding of all of the hadith he knows this hadith he knows that one he knows this one he knows that one and then he can put them all together and be able to give you the correct fatwa whereas a person who doesn't have all of that understanding he knows a few hadith here maybe even up to here maybe even up to here his fatwa will be limited because he doesn't know all of that section yet so they say the mujtahid is the one who has a wide and broad understanding of the sunnah such that he can give you his ijtihad accurately and give you his fatwa accurately so then he mentions wal musannif awrada hadha al hadith min ajli bayan bayan hukm qira'at al quran so the purpose of this narration was connected to the previous one the previous one was about not touching the mushaf when you're not upon wudu so this is connected to that in case a person then reads this narration and says but the messenger used to do the dhikr at all times rather you combine them all and then you come to the correct understanding <coughs> then after that an anas ibn malik رضي الله عنه أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم احتجم وصلى ولم يتوضأ. This is a hadith that Al Hafiz ibn Hajar mentions here. And remember, even some of the narrations in Bulugh al Maram, there is speech about their authenticity. But this is a narration that he mentions. He says it is a narration from Anas ibn Malik that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam had the cupping done to himself, had the cupping done and then he went and prayed without making wudu afterwards. The clear understanding of that narration would therefore be, the fatwa would be that if you get cupping done, that doesn't nullify your wudu that is the apparent that is understood from the narration uh, but 
there is speech about the authenticity of this particular narration. Nevertheless, in terms of understanding its meanings and the discussion around it, firstly, the hijama, the act of copying, istikhraj al-dam al-mihjam so cupping as we call it now it is the extraction of blood from the body using the cupping tool these days the cupping tool are the actual cups that you put on and the suction occurs and it sucks out that blood from the body. In the olden days, of course, the suction didn't work in the way that it works now with the modern devices. In the olden days, the suction was done by with your mouth and a straw. The suction was done to take the blood out from the person you're cupping. That's why when you get to the, uh, the uh, hadith regarding Ramadan, there is the big discussion as to whether cupping breaks your fast or not. Because of the hadith, when the messenger saw the two men, one of them was cupping the other one. And so the messenger said, Both of them, their fasts are broken. There's a difference of opinion on that, that inshallah when we get to it. But the point is, the one who was cupped, the one who was being cupped, you could say, okay, that's a, maybe an easy fatwa that he was cupping when he was fasting and that breaks his fast. But the one who was cupping him, why does his fast break? He's not getting cupped, he's just cupping somebody else. Because in the olden days, the method of cupping was suction via the sucking of the, in the breath with the, the straw or something of that nature. And that could possibly mean something may enter into the mouth of the one cupping the other person too. So uh, that is the process of cupping. And the Prophet ﷺ said that within it, there is a cure. Within it, there is a cure. Hadith in Al-Bukhari mentioning the honey and the cupping and the cauterization. And this cupping is something that was well known among the Arabs. And the Prophet ﷺ himself got the cupping done. And that is mentioned in Al-Bukhari and other places. The messenger himself had the cupping done. So in this hadith it mentions that the messenger got the cupping done. The blood removed from his body. But that it did not break his wudu. He went and prayed without repeating his wudu but this issue has a difference of opinion between the scholars if you get cupped has your wudu gone or not there is a difference al-qawlul the first opinion of the scholars is annahu la yunqidhul wudu illa al-kharij min as-sabilain أو من غيرهما من بقية البدن إذا كان بولا أو غائطا. The first opinion is that nothing nullifies your wudu 
except if it exits from the two pathways. And that is in reference to your uh, uh, front private areas and your rear private areas, the two pathways. If something exits from your two pathways, then your wudu breaks. Besides that, they say, no, it does not break. Unless the same uh, material, if you want to call it that, exits from other than the two pathways, then the same ruling, your wudu breaks. Meaning urine and feces, if they were to exit from your body in a manner other than the normal manner of your two pathways, for example, people have the, uh, what do you call it, the trick or uh, something? Yeah, all, all those things, people have these various other medical conditions and the urine and feces exit from your body in a manner other than the two pathways. So the scholars, they say, if you had some injury or some wound occurred and some uh, 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 amount of that urine or feces exited, then your wudu would break again. You could not say, but it did not exit from the two pathways. Anything that exits from the two pathways or if that same thing exits from other than the two pathways, that same thing, urine, feces, then your wudu breaks too. The Sheikh mentions the example, if a person had some type of blockage or some type of medical condition, so the medics, the doctors, they make an opening in his stomach and so then his uh, uh, waste comes from there, then this would also be considered as the wudu breaking. أَمَّا إِذَا كَانَ الْخَارِجِ مِنْ هَذِي الْفَتْحَةِ وَغَيْرِهَا مِنْ بَقِيَّةِ الْبَدْنِ غَيْرِ بَوْلْ وَغَائِطْ كَالْدَمْ وَالْقَيْءْ وَالْعَافِ وَمَا أَشْبَهَ ذَلِكَ فَإِنَّهُ لَا يَنْقُضُ الْوُضُوءِ But as for anything other than urine and feces, blood or vomit or other, other things from the body exiting other than blood, other than uh, urine and feces, Anything other than urine and feces exiting from your body, blood, vomit, other things, they say, no, that doesn't break your wudu. Those other things do not break your wudu if they exit from your body, from these injuries or other places. We mentioned the example before. In jihad, the companions, some of them, it's mentioned in Sirah, they would be struck by the enemy arrows. And maybe the arrows were still in their legs even. And the blood coming out from that injury and they would be praying. <coughs> and they would not go and make their wudu again because blood has come out now. They were injured in the battles. Blood was coming from them. And yet they did not used to go and repeat their wudu. So... The scholars of this opinion, they say blood and other things, they don't break your wudu. And they give the example, of course, of Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiyallahu anhu, lamma tu'ina wa huwa yusalli, akmala salatahu ba'da an amara, abdal rahman ibn awf, an ya'umma al-nas, wa akmala salatahu ma'an nas, when Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiyallahu anhu, was stabbed, when he was stabbed in the Fajr prayer and blood was gushing out, it mentions in his biographies, blood was gushing out. Not just slowly coming out, stabbed with a double-sided dagger it was. Not just a knife. 
a dagger that you hold in the middle and it has two sides to it. He was stabbed and the, and the blood was gushing out. In some of his biographies it mentioned afterwards when they gave him milk to drink it went down and it came out of the wound. But yet it mentions in that Fajr prayer he carried on and he finished his Fajr prayer. He was leading when he got stabbed so he moved back. Abdurrahman ibn Awf carried on and finished the leading of the prayer but Umar ibn al-Khattab stepped back and carried on in the congregation. He couldn't lead anymore. But he, stopped, he stepped back into the congregation and carried on and finished his Fajr prayer. Despite all of that blood coming out from the wounds where he'd been stabbed. So they say upon this opinion that blood and other things coming out of your body do not break your wudu. Therefore, according to them, cupping obviously does not break your wudu. Cupping does not break your wudu according to this first opinion. The second opinion, أَنَّ الْخَارِجَ مِنْ بَقِيَّةِ الْبَدْنِ إِذَا كَانَ نَجِسًا مِنْ دَمْ أَوْ قَيْءِ وَكَانَ كَثِيرًا فَإِنَّهُ يَنْقُضُ الْوُضُوءِ قِيَاسًا عَلَى مَا يَخْرُجُ مِنَ السَّبِيلَيْنِ They say if something exits from the body, uh, from the impurities like blood or vomit and it's a lot it's a lot they say then in that case your wudu breaks if a lot of blood comes out a lot of vomit comes out from the rest of your body from some wound or other injury if it's a lot they say your wudu breaks Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah أشهد أن محمد رسول الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاة حي على الصلاة So the second opinion is that anything that exits from the rest of your body, from a wound or some type of injury, if it is a lot of some impure substance, like blood they mention the example of, 
vomit, they mention the example of, if a lot of that exits from some other part of your body, then it breaks the wudu. Your wudu is nullified, invalidated. So these are the two opinions. The first opinion saying, no, it does not invalidate your wudu at all. The second opinion saying, it does if it is a significant amount, if it's a lot, then it breaks your wudu according to the second opinion. So according to the second opinion, if it's a small amount, it doesn't break your wudu. So if you have a small cut or some small injury and a bit of blood comes out, even upon the second opinion, that doesn't break your wudu. But if it was significant, a proper injury, blood coming out, then according to them it does. What appears to be correct in these opinions is the first blood exiting from the rest of your body or uh, other substances except urine and feces. Other substances from the rest of your body do not break your wudu outside of the pathways. Also then, in this hadith, as Shaykh al-Fawzan mentions, uh, some further benefits at the end. He says, Al-mas'alatu al-ula ibahatu al-tadawi li'anna al-hijama naw'un min al-tadawi wa qad fa'alaha al-nabiyu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bal innahu amara bit-tadawi faqala sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tadawu wa la tadawu bi-haram fa-tadawi mubah wa huwa inda al-jumhur ghayru wajib من تركه فلا حرج عليه ومن العلماء من يرى أنه واجب لقوله صلى الله عليه وسلم تداووا وهذا أمر وهو مذهب الظاهرية he mentions here the ruling regarding uh, treating oneself or taking medication that it is permissible because cupping is a form of treatment Cupping is a form of treatment. So taking treatments for medical conditions, other issues is permissible. And that is uh, according to the statement of the Prophet Tadawu, uh, 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 cure yourselves, take medication, but do not do so with the haram. Take the medication, the cures, etc. Treat yourselves, but not with anything haram. And so, treating yourself, taking medication, uh, affairs of that nature, it is permissible. And according to the majority of the scholars, it is not obligatory. It is not obligatory, but it is permissible. So the one who doesn't take medication or treatment then it is not a sin upon him according to the majority. But there are scholars who view that a person in that type of medical need, it is obligatory upon him to seek treatment. And they say that is because the hadith comes in the form of a command. Tadawu fi'il amr. And the default of that in usulul fiqh is that it means an order, a command. So they say the messenger is commanding you 
That when you're ill, seek treatment, do the treatment, take the medicine. They say that's a command from the messenger to do that. And if it's a command, then it is an obligation. So you have, <coughs> you have the opinions on that issue there too. Secondly, يَدُلُّ الْحَدِيثِ عَلَى مَشْرُوعِيَّةِ الْأَخْذِ بِالْأَسْبَابِ وَأَنَّ ذَلِكَ لَا يُنَافِ التَّوَكُّلِ وَهَذِهِ قَاعِدَ شَرْعِيَّةِ عَظِيمَةِ فَالْإِنسَانُ يَتَدَاوَى وَلَكِنْ يَتَوَكَّلَ عَلَى اللَّهِ فِي حُصُولِ الشِّفَاءِ وَلَا يَعْتَمِدْ عَلَى السَّبَبِ أَوْ عَلَى الدَّوَاءِ أَوْ عَلَى الطَّبِيبِ أَوْ عَلَى الْمُسْتَشْفَى وَإِنَّمَا هَذِهِ أَسْبَابٌ يَتَعَاطَاهَا وَقَدْ أَمَرَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى بِهَا وَإِنَّمَا النَّتِيجَةُ تُطْلَبُ مِنَ اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى فَلَا تَنَافِي بَيْنَ الْأَخْذِ بِالْأَسْبَابِ وَالتَّوَكَّلِ عَلَى اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى بل... So he says another benefit from this narration the fact that the messenger did copying and copying is a form of treatment so the messenger was taking a form of treatment and so he says the other benefit to derive from this is the legislation, the ruling to take the means that a person takes the means to an affair so with treatment now, with copying, a person can take that means to bring about some benefit for himself. And taking the means does not mean that you have lost your trust in Allah. There is no contradiction between the two. He says this is an Islamic principle. There is no contradiction. If you take the means, you take the treatment, then that does not mean you are not putting your trust in Allah. Rather, al-insan yatadawa, walakin yatawakkal ala Allah fi husul shifa. Rather, he says, a person can take treatment, but must remember to put his trust in Allah for the cure to occur. Do not take your medicine and have your trust in the medicine. This medicine is going to make me better. The medicine is a means. It is a means. But will that means have the impact and make you better? That is under the control of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You take the necessary means, but you put your trust in Allah for cure. Do not take that medicine believing it's the medicine. This medicine is going to cure me. This medicine is going to uh, uh, fix me. You take the medicine as a means, but your trust is in Allah for cure. And that is what Ibn al-Qayyim mentioned. Means are there, and you take the means that are there to various affairs. Take the means that are there for various affairs. That is in the religion, in the legislation, to take the means. But in taking the means to something, do not put your dependence and trust into the means. They are just a means to the goal. The goal will only be achieved by the permission of Allah. And that's why Ibn al-Qayyim said sometimes the means to something are so clear and blatant and available. And a person takes all of those means such that there should be no reason for that person not to get the goal from those means. 
He takes all of the necessary means such that he should, to all sense, achieve the goal. But maybe he does not. Maybe he does not even after taking all of the means. And that could be because Ibn al-Qayyim said a person has done other things, maybe sins, maybe other wrongdoings, and they are counteracting these means that he has taken to this goodness that he wants. And as a consequence, his goodness is not achieved. A person takes all the means to get some goodness. Everything does it all. He should get it. But he doesn't get that goodness and it doesn't happen for him. Because maybe he's done sins and other things that are counteracting these means he's taken. And as a consequence, he doesn't get what he was hoping to get. So a person takes the means but puts his trust in Allah. Same with medicine here, the Shaykh says, take the means, take the medicine if you wish, but your trust is in Allah. It is not the medicine that will cure you. It is, the, it is by Allah's permission that you will be cured. So, لا تنافي بين الأخذ بالأسباب والتوكل على الله There is no contradiction in putting your trust in Allah, but also taking the means. You can take the means, but have your trust in Allah. Because some people, they think, if I take the means, then it's as though... I'm relying on them and I haven't got full trust in Allah, so I shouldn't take the means. If I take them, it's like I'm weak. Not necessarily at all. The scholars, they mention, take the means, it is permissible, it is legislated, but maintain your trust in Allah and there is no contradiction. It cannot be said that you are weak in your trust in Allah if you take the means. So, Al-Akhaz Bil-Asbab Wa-Tawakkal Ala Allah La Tanafi Baynahuma there is no contradiction between the two. بَلْ إِنَّ تَعْطِيلَ الْأَسْبَابِ مَنْهِيٌ عَنْهُ شَرْعًا وَمُخَالِفٌ لِأُصُولِ الدِّينِ وَعَقِيدَةِ أَهْلِ سُنَّةِ وَالْجَمَاعَةِ Rather, if a person comes along and nullifies the means and writes them off, cannot do this, cannot do that, cannot do this, writes off all of the means and invalidates them. And they are legitimate, legislative means. If a person writes them off, then that is impermissible for him to do so. It is in opposition to the principles of the religion and the aqidah of Ahl Sunnah. It's like they used to say, one of the teachers used to mention, a person says that I make dua to Allah every day to grant me righteous children. A good dua. A good dua. He says, I make dua every day. Oh Allah, grant me righteous children. Grant me righteous offspring. Good, righteous, pious children. Every day he makes dua, makes dua, makes dua. And yet, he hasn't even bothered to go and get married yet. So they say, what are you talking about? What, what dua are you making? This is a case of somebody claiming to have their trust in Allah when in reality they have fallen into this ta'atilul asbab he has nullified the means hasn't bothered to go and look for a wife or to get married nullified the means and then says but my tawakkul is in Allah Allah will provide me righteous children without taking the means to marriage 
So they say this is not tawakkul, this is tawakul. It's like a, a person who goes on hajj. They give this example. Somebody goes on hajj. They buy a ticket here now from Bradford, mashallah, all these agencies. They buy a ticket, the plane ticket lands you in Saudi Arabia, but that's all they bought. They haven't bought any hotels there. They haven't bought any transport there. They've bought nothing. You've got the agencies here, have sold just a ticket. Get you to Saudi Arabia, he says. I'll get you there. After that, it's up to you. Go do your hajj. I'll just get you to Saudi Arabia. So the man buys his ticket to get to Saudi Arabia. It's not possible these days anyway, but somebody who does that. He gets to Saudi Arabia, hasn't arranged anything. No hotel, no transport, no food, no nothing. And on top of that, he's gone with empty pockets. Nothing. He says, Tawakkal ala Allah. I, as long as I get to Saudi Arabia, my trust is in Allah. I will perform all of the hajj. Perhaps he'll be dead after three days more likely. I will perform all of the hajj. Tawakkal upon Allah. Where are you going to stay, brother? Allahu alam. I have no money, but tawakkal Allah. What are you going to eat for a week when you're there? Allahu alam. Tawakkal Allah. How are you going to get from, uh, from uh, Muzdalifa, Mina, Arafah, all these places? How are you going to move around? Are you, how are you going to do anything? Tawakkal Allah. The scholars, they say, no, this is not tawakkul upon Allah. This is tawakkul. A pretense of tawakkul upon Allah. What are you talking about? In that land with nothing, no hotel, no food, no, no organization whatsoever. How are you going to go perform your hajj and come back home? So they say, you must take the means. A man now wants righteous children, makes dua to Allah for righteous children. Then take the means and go and get married and then inshallah ta'ala Allah will bless you with righteous children so this is what they say you cannot negate the means to something and then say but I have my trust in Allah Allah will give me righteous children and you don't go get married ever so this is not correct a person must take the necessary means and then put his trust in Allah subhanahu ta'ala thereafter uh, a person who does those kinds of things it is mentioned that type of approach from people is in reality a weakness an incapability like for example this man righteous children maybe he can't uh, he doesn't want to go put that effort in he doesn't want to go do viewings he, he's incapable and weak and he, he can't get himself to go and do what needs to be done to get married it's his own incapability and weakness to go and do what needs to be done so in reality those people are not taking the means from their own incapability and from their own weakness in striving for that which they need as the hadith mentions ihras ala ma strive for what is of benefit for you and seek assistance from Allah and do not become weak and feeble don't become weak and feeble but go after what is beneficial for your religion beneficial for you and your family strive for those affairs don't just sit there Allah will grant me this oh Allah grant me that grant me this grant me that and you don't go out and do anything don't take any means to anything 
Same with knowledge. You cannot just sit there, Oh Allah, make me a scholar, make me alim, make me knowledgeable, make me hafiz of the Qur'an, and yet you never pick it up to memorize anything. How are you going to become hafiz? How are you going to become knowledgeable? You don't read the books, you don't listen to the scholars, you don't attend the classes, but then you say, Oh Allah, make me knowledgeable. You must take the means and then put your trust in Allah. So attend the gatherings, learn, read, listen to the scholars, memorize, and then make dua, Oh Allah. Strengthen me in my knowledge and my memorization. You are taking the means, putting your trust in Allah. And that is the method of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. That is perhaps where we'll have to stop then. Isha prayer is 7.30. Huh? Ah, 8.30. Completely delayed. 8.30. So we'll have to stop there then. Uh, for the prayer, inshallah ta'ala, we'll resume the next time. Uh, is there anything left? That's pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. That's enough. That's enough, yeah. Next time we'll start with the. Uh, in here, what's next in this one? Okay, we'll start on that next time. So the next chapter, <coughs> next chapter we'll start next time is what are the different things that necessitate for ghusl to be needed? Obviously everybody knows the sexual impurity, you must make ghusl. But there are lots of other things where if you do them, then ghusl is obligatory upon you. Not just the sexual impurity. There are other things that make ghusl obligatory upon a person. So inshallah ta'ala, that's what we'll start with next time. Uh, regarding the different types of things that would require from a person to make the ghusl. Any questions or anything up to that? Scholars, they say that's okay. The devices, the electronic devices with the Quran on it, isn't considered a mushaf, they say. It's, it's in the depths of your phone, some application in all of these electronics. That's not considered as a mushaf. So they say you can't uh, be holding your phone and reading. Mm. Yeah, uh, for those kinds of uh, the stoma bags and things where it's constantly perhaps exiting constantly Allah alam if it is constantly exiting if any, any situation of constant exit whether somebody has a problem with breaking wind constantly or has a problem with droplets of urine exiting constantly then in those cases the scholars they say you simply make wudu prior to the prayer and then pray even if Further exit occurs during the prayer. You don't then keep going and making wudu, keep going and making wudu. You make the wudu prior to the prayer and pray. Even if it then it is exiting after that.
Allah alam if there is a distinction to that level uh, Mus'haf when they talk about the Mus'haf they are, in refer they are referring to the, the physical copy of the Quran if there's an actual separate cover on it they make that distinction they do say if there's a like sometimes you see they have the cloth covers and then the wrap around they say okay that's not physically touching it you could move it or whatever but then to go into that level of touching the sides but not touching the words it's perhaps going into a level that is beyond what's necessary the rulings are simply about the mushaf the physical copy of the quran that you do not touch that and go through that and read from it when you don't have wudu There are some. There are some scholars who have said if you have the option of reading on your phone or reading from a proper mushaf, some scholars do say read from the mushaf. There are some who have said that. But it's not a major thing. If a person has the, the device, you can read from it. But there are some. There are some who have said use the physical copies rather than these devices on your phones. Hmm. All right, we'll conclude upon that. Inshallah ta'ala, next class in two weeks. Uh, no, in uh, four weeks then.